In the previous lesson, we discussed the spiritual significance of Torah. And we explained that there are two aspects to Torah. One is that the Torah is a wisdom. And in that sense, Torah is similar to other wisdoms. But this is only the external aspect of Torah. In essence, the soul of Torah and the real essence of Torah is the fact that it's a godly wisdom. That there's godliness in this wisdom. That Hashem's presence, God's presence is found in the wisdom of Torah. So when a person studies Torah and he's gaining new wisdom, the goal and the purpose of studying is not just for academic purposes in order to become a scholar and in order to attain this knowledge but the real purpose is to become more connected to Hashem that when one studies Torah and they're able to take this concept in their brain and digest the concept what they're actually doing is they're internalizing godliness because Hashem's presence is found in the words, in the concepts of Torah. In this lesson, we'll go a little bit further in explaining what does it mean that the concepts of Torah are not just concepts and not just wisdom, but a godly wisdom. The Medrash tells us a story of what happened when Moshe Rabbeinu, when Moses went up to heaven to receive the Torah from God to bring it back to us. And the Medrash says that when Moshe Rabbeinu wanted to take the Torah down to this world to give it to us, he was confronted by the angels. And they said, They complained. They said, Hashem, God, this Torah, this precious gem that you have, why are you giving it to the people on earth. This is something which should remain here in heaven. The appropriate place for something so special and so spiritual like Torah is in the heaven. Moshe Rabbeinu did not answer the angels. And then God turned to him and said, Why don't you answer them? And Moshe Rabbeinu said, I'm afraid of them. They can destroy me with their fire of the mouth. And God said to Moshe Rabbeinu, hold on to my throne and you can answer them. By holding on to my throne, you'll be protected. You have nothing to worry about. So he held on to Hashem's throne and he answered them. And he said to them, it says in the Ten Commandments, I am God, your God that took you out of Egypt. Were you ever enslaved in Egypt? And the angel said, no. It says in the Ten Commandments, Honor your father and mother. Do you have parents that you have to honor? They said no. It says do not steal, do not kill, do not commit adultery. Do you have an evil inclination that you have a drive to do these immoral things? And the angel said no. And then Moshe Rabbeinu concluded if that's the case, then the Torah doesn't belong up there in heaven. It belongs down here on earth. And at this point, the angels said that they agree that the Torah does belong down here on earth. In fact, they gave them gifts to show that they're giving 
allowing him to take the Torah wholeheartedly and willingly. And this is the story that we find in the Medrash. Naturally, a lot of the details about holding on to the throne and the fire, it's all a metaphor for certain spiritual things going on in the spiritual realm. But this is the way it's presented in the Medrash. And this story definitely needs an explanation. And the main question that comes to mind is, we understand that we're talking about angels, angels of God, and naturally they expected that the Torah should be up in heaven. They had reasons to think that that's where it belongs. And the answer that Moshe Rabbeinu gave them, and through this answer he proved to them that the Torah belongs here on earth, that answer is a simple thing that a five-year-old would understand. From the story it appears that the angels had a good reason for their demand that the Torah remains in heaven. But Moshe Rabbeinu, in his greatness, was able to find a way to explain to them that nevertheless it really belongs down here on earth. But if you look at the story, there's nothing that he's telling them which is has any depth to it, has any wisdom to it. All he said is that you have no evil inclination. You don't have any parents. What really lies behind this dialogue between Moshe Rabbeinu and the angels? In order to explain this, we must first bring in that which it says that the Torah is described as Moshul HaKadmaini. Moshul HaKadmaini means it's the parable of God. Moshul means a parable. Kadmaini means the one who always existed which is God. So the Torah is the parable of God. What does it mean that the Torah is considered a parable? We find an interesting thing in reference to parables. The Gemara talks about the fact that there were a lot of things that went on in the earlier generations and then they were discontinued. A lot of good things that happened in the earlier generation and then they discontinued. And the reason for this is because in the Torah world, the way we view the continuation of generations, the earlier the generation, those generations that were further back were on a higher spiritual level. And as time goes on and the generations that are further away were on a the, the, the people and the generation is on a lower spiritual level. For example, from the beginning of creation until about a thousand years after the Jewish people received the Torah, there were many prophets, starting from Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov, our forefathers, throughout the years. And then when the temple was destroyed, it stopped. There no longer were any prophets. So here the Gemara talks about different things, positive things, that went on until a certain period, and then at a certain point in history, it stopped. One of them is, the Gemara says, Mishames Reb Meir, Butlu Meishle Mishalim. When Reb Meir, one of the greatest Torah scholars, who was considered a Tana, when he passed away, that was the end of the era of people who say parables. In other words, in the early generations, where the rabbis were in a higher spiritual level, and a higher level intellectually, they taught with parables. But when Reb Meir passed away, that was the beginning of a new era where people were on a lower spiritual and an intellectual level, and therefore they no longer had the rabbis that taught with parables. In fact, Reb Meir himself 
the Gemara says, he said 300 parables. And at the surface, this seems very strange. What is so incredible, what is so brilliant about a parable? Any person could sit down and think of a parable to a certain idea. We know many people in our generation, in previous generations, in, in, in five, ten generations ago, that constantly taught with parables. So what does it mean that when he passed away, people were no longer on that spiritual and intellectual level that they could teach with a parable? In fact, what does it say about Reb Meir, which shows his greatness, that he gave over 300 parables? Does that really mean that he's a genius because he was able to give 300 parables? In fact, you find a similar thing in reference to Shlomo Melech, King Solomon, where it says in Mishlei, in Proverbs, that that King Solomon, he spoke and he gave over 3,000 parables. True? It requires a lot of work and effort and wisdom to say 3,000 parables. But nevertheless, is this how we measure the greatness of the most brilliant individual that ever lived in the world that he was able to give 3,000 parables? It seems to be within the reach of every ordinary intelligent person. If he only puts his head to it and spends some time, he could put together 300 parables. A little bit more time, a little bit more effort, he should be able to put together 3,000 parables. Is this a way of describing the most brilliant brain that ever existed in history? And the answer is, there actually are two kinds of parables. The kind of parable that people in our generation use, these are parables which basically help understand the concept a little bit better, and it also adds more of a flavor to the con concept. When we talk about the earlier generations, Especially when we say that in the time of Reb Meir, at that time, that was the end. He was the last one to give over parables. We're talking about something very unusual. Here we're talking about people who needed the parable in order to transmit their wisdom. There was no way in the world that they were able to give over their concepts and their teachings without a parable. And that's something, an entirely different caliber of a parable. To explain this, we find that there is a tremendous distance between a teacher and a student. A teacher is much more intelligent, much more brilliant than the student, and that's why he's teaching the student, and hopefully developing the intelligence of the student that he should also be able to understand things on the same level as the teacher one day. So when a teacher understands a concept on a very deep level, on a very abstract level, the greatest difficulty is how to explain it to the student in a way that the student can understand it. Being that the student is not on the same level of intelligence as the teacher, as his professor, on the other hand, the professor wants to share these ideas with the student. How can he share these ideas with the student? How can he explain it to the student that that student should understand it? And there are two ways that this can be done. One way is that he gives, that he gives over the concept in a very simple way. He simplifies the concept. 
In other words, what he's giving over is also logic, but in a more simple form. The other possibility is that he gives over the concept through a story. In other words, he's not telling him something which is logical or, or uh, philosophical. It's a story. But that story contains the concept in it. The first thing would be, as an example, when a person is teaching a very young child, the first time in his life, arithmetic, and teaches him that 2 plus 2 equals 4. When he says 2 plus 2 equals 4, the child opens his eyes and looks at him and has no idea what he's talking about. So he makes a picture on the blackboard of one apple and another apple, and that's two apples. Then next to it, he draws another two apples. And then he says to the child, how much uh, these two apples plus these two apples equals four apples. And the child understands it. So what he's doing is he's giving over the logic, but in a very simplified way. In fact, the child really hasn't grasped the true depth of this concept. Because if you ask the child, what would happen if I have two quarters and two quarters, how much would it be? He would say, I'm sorry, you never told me anything about that. You only taught me about apples. Because he sees the concept now as it's connected to the apples. He doesn't really grasp the true idea that two plus two equals four is a general concept. If you want to teach a child that it's immoral to mislead someone, to give someone misleading information or misleading advice, and by giving them the wrong advice, you're going to cause them to fail or to lose something. For example, someone who is in a situation where he has to make a choice of what to do in order to get a promotion in his position, in his position in government or wherever it is, and he asks you for advice. It's considered immoral to tell them to do something which would make them fall and lose that opportunity of promotion. In fact, lose the position that they already have. Or the same thing with loss, a financial loss. Someone who has to make a choice whether to buy something or sell something, and he doesn't know whether by doing it he'll be gaining or losing. And you know that if he makes a certain move he'll be losing. You're not allowed to tell him to do that and knowing that if he does it, he's going to lose money. That's considered immoral. But there's a certain point in a child's life that these concepts are too abstract. So you have to simplify the concept. And one of the ways of simplifying the concept is teaching him that if you see a person who's blind walking down the street, you're not allowed to put a stumbling block in front of that person because you'll cause them to fall. And they're not capable of seeing that stumbling block. So you're responsible for their falling, and that's immoral. That the child can understand. It's something tangible, something the child can relate to. From that, perhaps later they'll understand that when you talk about not putting a stumbling block in front of a blind person, it doesn't only mean blind, physically blind, but it means blind in any way. If he's blind in terms of not knowing what direction to take in life. And putting a stumbling block doesn't necessarily mean actually taking a piece of wood or a stone and putting it near his feet. But giving the person the wrong advice is a stumbling block. And causing the person to fall doesn't mean we actually physically falls on the floor and his nose starts bleeding. But any kind of fall, financially to fall or 
status wise to fall, his prestige should fall. It's all the same. But initially, it's too abstract them to relate to these concepts. So that's called simplifying. In other words, I am giving him a concept. I am giving him something which is logic, but simplified. And it's absolutely necessary because at a certain stage, a child can only relate to things which are physical and tangible and can't see beyond that. I remember once overhearing two children arguing between themselves whose father is older. And then one of them said, it's impossible that your father is older than mine because my father is so much taller than your father. He couldn't fathom how is it possible for somebody who's shorter than another person to be older than that person. So he couldn't conceive the idea of bigger and smaller in an abstract way only as, as it's identified with size, with physical size, bigger and smaller. So just like there's this difference and this distance between an adult and a child, the same applies to adults. There are adults who are geniuses and brilliant people, and they understand things on a very abstract level. Those that are not on that level, true, they're much more intelligent than children, but relatively speaking, they cannot understand things on the same abstract level as the philosopher, as the professor. And therefore, when the professor has to explain this concept, he gives over the idea, he gives over this logic, but simplifies it for the student. But then there's another situation, and that is that the concept is so deep, is so abstract, that it's impossible to give this concept over to the student. Because no way can the student relate to this concept. And no matter how much it's simplified, no matter how he'll try to present it in these words or those words or this way or that way, it's still too abstract for the student to understand. It's like trying to explain a child, for example, that there's a subconscious and a conscious. And when someone says something to you, maybe on a conscious level, they're saying it's for this reason. But subconsciously, it's coming from a different place. There's a level of a child where he can't understand that. And no matter how you explain it and how you simplify it and how you word it, it makes absolutely no difference. He can't relate to it. It's too abstract. The whole concept is too abstract for him to relate to it. So the same applies to adults. There is sometimes a concept that the philosopher is capable of going so deep into it on such a deep abstract level that no matter how he presents it and how he words it and how he phrases it and how much he simplifies it, there's just no way he can give this over to the student. And in that case, he has no choice but to give over it in the form of a story. To tell a story, which is actually a parable. The story contains this deep wisdom in it, but because it's in the form of a story, the student is able to receive it. Later, he starts studying that story and analyzing the details of the story and the message in the story. And ultimately, after a lot of effort is put in, he'll be able to derive the depth that lies in that story. So in ordinary circumstances, it's really not necessary. In ordinary circumstances, even the deepest professor or philosopher would always simplify his concept for the student. And that's what the Gemara says in the times of Reb Meir. He was the last one to close and seal that era. In those days, there were such great Torah scholars 
people who were such intellectual giants, they understood things on such a deep, abstract level that it was impossible for them to give it over to their students, even if it was simplified. And the only way they were able to give over certain concepts was through a story, through a parable. In other words, if only it would be given over in the form of logic, even if simplified, it would be too deep and too abstract for the students to accept it, to understand it. And therefore, it had to be given over in a form which is not even logic, just a story form. As the Gemara gives an example of Reb Meir, one of his parables, that there was a fox who came to a vineyard and wanted to get in to eat the grapes. But the opening in the fence was too narrow for the fox to get in. So the fox fasted for three days until it became skinny enough to slip in. And then it spent time in the vineyard and ate to its heart's content. But then it was too fat to get back out. So it had to fast another three days to get back out. In other words, this is a story which anyone can understand. But in this story lies wisdom and such wisdom that had it been given over any other way, it would have been too deep and too abstract to understand. However, sometimes the concept is so deep and so abstract that even the parable which is given over is too deep to comprehend. And therefore, it's necessary to give a parable for the parable. And sometimes it's so deep and so abstract, even a parable for the parable is not enough. You need three levels of parables to bring the concept over. And this was the greatness of Rameya. The Gemara says Rameya was such an intellectual giant of giants that he needed 300 parables. Not that he said 300 stories in his lifetime, but his concepts were understood on such a deep, abstract level, it was so removed from the tangible world that he needed 300 levels of parables to explain one of his concepts. And now we understand the great brilliance of Shlomo Melech of King Solomon. When it says that he said 3,000 parables, we're not saying that he gave over 3,000 stories in his lifetime which had meaning. But it's saying that he understood things on such a deep level, such an abstract level, so far removed from our world, that it needed 3,000 levels of parables to explain the concept that he understood. And that is indeed incredible, mind-boggling brilliance. So after the days of Reb Meir, there no longer lived people who understood concepts on such a deep, abstract level. And now we can understand what it means when it says that the Torah is God's parable. In other words, the wisdom we see in Torah, the wisdom we see in the Chumash, the stories we see there, even though there's wisdom there, but it's actually a parable to a much deeper wisdom, which is the true wisdom of God. When you, so when we see different laws in the Torah that talk about how a person should relate to his children, how husband and wife have to relate to each other. Laws pertaining to a field. Laws pertaining to how to relate to animals. Laws pertaining to observance of Shabbos. All these things, which are laws that have in a lot of wisdom and how to deal with things here on the physical world, but in essence they also contain within themselves a much deeper wisdom. In fact, they're like a parable to a much deeper wisdom which is God's wisdom. When we read the stories in the Torah, 
stories about our forefathers, Abraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov, or the matriarchs of Sarah, Rivka, Rachel, and Leah, the stories of the twelve tribes, the brothers, how they interacted with each other. True, these stories actually happen, and these stories have in it the significance on a certain physical level, what went on between the brothers, but they also have in it a deeper wisdom. In fact, this story that's presented to us in the Torah is like a mushal, it's like a parable to something which is much, much deeper, much more abstract than what actually took place on here on the physical realm. And what took place on the physical realm was a manifestation and a reflection of something else that was going on on a much higher spiritual plane. So Abraham, for example, Abraham represents the attribute of kindness. And Yitzchak, Isaac, he contained within the attribute of Gevura, which is severity. So when the Torah tells us about different things that Abraham did, or different things Yitzchak did, it's a story that actually happened, and it has its meaning on a simple level, but then we also realize that this is a parable to something much deeper. And the same to every single story in the Torah, every single law in the Torah, every single detail in the Torah is actually a parable to something which is much deeper. And so if someone like Shleim HaMelech, which was a human being, could understand the concept on a level which is 3,000 levels deeper than our realm of understanding, how much more so when we talk about God's wisdom. Because just like God Himself, the distance between Him and us is infinite, so too the distance between His wisdom and our wisdom also infinite. So the Torah is a parable, not to a wisdom which is thousands of levels above it, but to a wisdom which is infinitely distant from our realm of understanding. And this is why there's a statement which was written by the Shalah, where he says that many people think the Torah The Torah talks about earthly things, but it also hints to us things in the spiritual realm. And he says, no, it's a mistake. It's not true. The Torah actually talks on a spiritual realm, but just hints to us here on the physical realm. In other words, which is the true concept of Torah? Is it the way it is here on the physical form, or is the Torah the way the wisdom stands in its pure, spiritual, abstract form? It's like asking a question when there's a parable to something. What's the true form of the wisdom? The way it's expressed in the parable, or the way it is in its abstract, purest form? Of course, it's not a question. The parable is only a parable. So the Torah, the way we see it, which is God's wisdom, true it's God's wisdom, but it's only a parable to the deepest, purest form of God's wisdom, which is the Torah in its spiritual sense. And this is what the angels demanded, that God leave the Torah in heaven. What does it mean? Of course they knew that the Torah talks about honoring parents, and not killing, and stealing, and committing adultery. But all this that we see is a parable to something deeper on the spiritual level. And that's what they said, the Torah should remain in its pure spiritual form, not be brought down and simplified in a physical form. And that's why they had the right to demand that the Torah stay up there. And Moshe Rabbeinu answered them, it's true, the Torah up there is in a much higher spiritual form, but the real purpose of creation 
And the real purpose of Torah is that these deep spiritual godly concepts should descend and should penetrate the physical realm and transform the physical realm into a spiritual world. This physical realm where there's a physical evil inclination and to, uh, an evil inclination to physically kill and steal, commit adultery, and so on and so forth. And that's the contents of this dialogue between the angels and Moshe Rabbein. In fact, this should not, God forbid, be mistaken, misinterpreted, to mean that what it says in the Torah is not literally what it says. God forbid. We're saying that what it says in the Torah is exactly what it says and to be taken literally. But that this is not the wisdom in its fullest form. It's only a parable to something much higher or much deeper. In fact, many times people study something and they see the reason that the Torah gives. And the reason they understand, but it still feels like there's something missing. And they don't understand it fully. It doesn't really satisfy them fully. That's because what they're looking at is only the skeleton and the exterior of that wisdom. It's only a simplified form of the tr pure, true wisdom. And this is why our rabbis refer to mysticism as the wisdom of truth. Of course, the whole Torah is truth. But it means this is the truth of the wisdom of Torah. The wisdom of Torah in its truest, purest form.